welcome back to another Commodity Conversation, brought to you by the team from Mikado.com.au. This week, we're going to be talking about something that is a big worry to many livestock producers out there, and that is big push for fake meat around the world. A couple of months ago, we did a taste test of uh, fake meat burgers, and uh, a lot of you will have listened to that, and uh, we were quite surprised by you know, how, how close it was to a real burger. Not a good burger, but it was pretty close to, you know, what I'd consider to be a, a cheap burger. So there has been a big push and uh, it definitely it doesn't seem to, it's not going to go any, away anywhere soon. And there was a report released recently by a think tank or lobby group called Food Frontier which is basically around about uh, talking about the the benefits of fake meat to Australian industry and agriculture. So we uh, invited uh, Food Frontier on to have a chat with us, and so we'll just get on to that in a second. Before we go on to the conversation with Thomas, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters, and that is livestockpricing.com.au. It's a relatively new organization, uh, set up back in 2017-2018 by uh, Rob Kelly, and it's it offers a really good quick handle of where livestock prices are at the moment. So you can come to us to get all the information about uh, you know where we think the market's going and what's happening in the markets, but this tool provides you with a good way of being able to find what the price is at the moment for all the different grids. And uh, it's really pretty handy because, you know, we're all pretty time insensitive and we need to find what we're looking for as quick as possible. So it's basically an app on your mobile and you can find the prices for sheep, cattle and goats all over the country uh, without having to do the ring around and uh, find out for yourself. You can just get it in uh, one handy uh, mobile phone app. So worthwhile having a look at it. And uh, as a Scotsman, I quite like it because, well, it's free of charge. So I recommend you have a look at it. Uh, Livestockpricing.com.au So, dear listeners, uh, I want to welcome Thomas King. He is the, uh, the CEO and founder of Food Frontier. He is an expert in non-meat meat and he has just recently released, with in conjunction with Deloitte, a report on how uh, alternate proteins, or fake meat, or non-meat meat, or whatever you want to call them, uh, will be a $3 billion business by 2030. So, uh, hello, Thomas. Uh, thanks for coming along. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Not a problem, mate. Just, could you, just for, for, for some of our listeners, could you give us a quick, short, sharp summary of who Food Frontier are? Absolutely. So Food Frontier is Australia and New Zealand's independent think tank and industry accelerator for alternative proteins. So we work with stakeholders across the whole value chain from uh, scientists to startups to agricultural bodies, food businesses and government to essentially navigate the emergence of alternative proteins and understand what considerations and opportunities they present. Okay, that's pretty interesting. So... And you, you've released a report recently in the last couple of days. Uh, I think it was at the, the Global Table event on uh, the future of the industry and, and on, in alternate meats and how it will be a $3 billion uh, industry. So well, can you give us a, a short summary on that one? What, what, is the, uh, what is your views on that? 
sure. So, I mean, just to set the context, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, our food system is facing some pretty major challenges. We're going to have 10 billion people in the world by 2050. Uh, and quite simply, we need sustainable solutions to feed them. Uh, and there's a plethora of global research pointing to the fact that plant proteins will need to be a big part of that mix in order to meet uh, the demands of the global population within planetary boundaries. And so at the same time, we're, we're seeing more and more consumers in, in developed nations like Australia, where we're consuming around 100 kilograms of meat per person per year, uh, trying to actively reduce their meat consumption. So the latest research we did with Colmar Brunton indicates about one in three Australians are limiting their meat consumption. Uh, and as they do that, they're seeking out alternatives to fill their plate. And this is seeing the rise of these plant-based meat alternative products that are aiming to satisfy what people love in a traditional burger or sausage or meatball or dumpling, uh, but while addressing their concerns, whether they be around health or environment or what have you. And so at Food Frontier, we wanted to understand what the size of this market currently is in Australia and the contribution it's making economically, but also model that out to, to 2030 and trying to understand what it could mean to the Australian economy in a decade's time. And so we engaged Deloitte Access Economics to undertake some pretty rigorous economic modelling, uh, leveraging financial data from manufacturers, international market data. Uh, they looked at other food sectors and how they're evolving. They undertook consultations with a whole broad range of stakeholders across the value chain. And essentially what they determined was that Australia's plant-based meat sector today is worth about $150 million in consumer expenditure, um, which only translates to about 265 jobs. And that's partly because at least half the products being sold on the Australian retail market are still imported. Um, but so, so out, sorry, can I, can I just ask a question? Out of that, uh, what do you say, $158 billion? $158 million, sorry. And that is... Um, that includes, I guess, previous generation plant-based products, or is that just included the, I guess, the modern Beyond Meat type ones? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, there is a, there's a spectrum of different options. Um, what they looked at was meat alternatives uh, of any kind, but but not uh, traditional veggie burgers and those sorts of products. They were looking at companies um, creating you know, uh, sausages and, and burgers and mints, whether it's sort of more of an old school approach uh, yeah. or whether it's the new generation of options. So it's worth it note, acknowledging that many of the options still in the in the Australian market are in that um, older older generation. They so were looking at, uh, yeah, that variety of products, but I would say a significant portion is represented by the new generation options, particularly in food service, which uh was roughly 35 million of that 150 uh, million. And so they then looked to 2030, again, uh, taking into account a, a, a cross-section of different data and interviews and um, analysis of international uh, markets. And uh, considering different variables, they mapped out three different future scenarios based on conservative growth, moderate growth, and then accelerated growth. And what they found in the moderate scenario is that the sector would be worth almost $3 billion in consumer expenditure 
contributing 1.1 billion in economic value add and translating to over 6,000 full-time equivalent jobs in Australia across the supply chain. And so that scenario would be based on a situation where seven, where plant-based meat alternatives have a 7.5% market share of Australia's total meat product consumption, if you want to frame it that way. And so that's roughly, you know, one plant-based burger per person per week or, you know, half the population eating two plant-based burgers or products uh, per week. So it's really not uh, that unrealistic, particularly when you look at parallel sectors like milk alternatives, which now command at least 10% of the liquid milk market. Yeah, so no, it's not it's not a huge volume, really, 7.5% or, or one, one, one patty a week. So in terms of, the, we, we're obviously a lot more concerned with the agricultural side of it as opposed to the consumer uh, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what would be the impact on the agricultural industry? Net, posit- uh, net positive, net negative? Yeah, so in recognizing that food production is going to have to increase considerably in the coming years and decades but on a global scale, and we, and we should think about this globally because um, you know, we exist in a globalized world. Also, the vast majority of Australia's agricultural product uh, is exported and we're reliant on international markets. So considering that food demand is, will increase up to 70% uh, within 30 years, the size of the prize overall uh, sorry, the size of the pie overall uh, is is growing. And so that opens up space for new entrants and new options. And as I've said earlier, uh, global research shows us that alternative sources of protein will need to be part of that mix if we're to feed everybody um, within the limitations of, of our planet and the resources we have available to us. So uh, we uh, Australia should very much be seeing this as evaluating and complementary opportunity. Um, plant proteins do and can and will continue to sit side by side with traditional forms of protein production. And the most immediate opportunity for agriculture is actually for those farmers, and there are you know, tens of thousands of, of, of Aussie farmers who produce crops and horticultural products, some of which could be redirected uh, into a high-value supply chain such as this, rather than you know, only going out to the global commodity market where it doesn't necessarily command a premium. And so the potential to create Australian-made uh, plant-based meat alternatives with Australian-grown inputs is considerable. About a ha- half of the products in the market in Australia at the moment are produced locally. Um, half of them are imported, which is a, a missed opportunity in my opinion. But it's, even those that are made locally... It's quite a similar uh, start if you actually look at pork meat as well, where about half of our pork meat is actually imported from uh, general Europe. So it's not, not an yeah, unusual it's, sort of start it, in terms it of... Would need some, yeah. Um, but, but even those that are produced locally are using imported proteins for the most part. And so the potential for business and for government to be looking at how we can uh, address the bottleneck in that supply chain, which is ingredient processing, you know, it's, it's plant protein isolation, would subsequently open up um, greater opportunities for primary producers to be supplying into that market. And we know Australia already produces you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of protein-rich crops, including you know, legumes, fibre beans, lentils, chickpeas, 
field peas, et cetera, which could be used for this kind of value-added application. But when you, one of, one of the issues we have in agriculture is that processing costs in Australia are prohibitively expensive compared to other parts of the world. So if I just use an example, we can make flour cheaper in Indonesia and we could probably re-import it back cheaper than if we actually produced that same flour locally. The same could be yeah. said for like so canola. Wouldn't we, why would we be producing it locally in Australia when we could send the, the policies to a third country and then uh, re-import it back? I think there's a few considerations there, and, and I'll firstly just acknowledge this is an area that you need to further research. Um, in terms of plant protein isolates used for these sorts of products, there is, depending on what kind of plant protein you're talking about, there are some global shortages occurring at the moment, and there's companies, some of the prominent companies in this category from the United States that have indicated that they don't necessarily have a reliable supply uh, of ingredients into the long term, and this is an issue that needs to be addressed. So the opportunity for Australia to participate in that, um, I, I think, is, is considerable and is immediate. Uh, many of the countries that are producing um, the ingredients required for these products, such as Canada, um, aren't necessarily doing so at a much cheaper price point. Of course, China is investing far more into this space, particularly um, pea protein, and so so that changes things. But then there are also a lot of companies not wanting to use uh, Chinese ingredients or, or consumers wanting to consume a product uh, with Chinese agricultural uh, inputs. And so, the, yeah, I don't think it's black and white. And, and you know, you raise a big point, and, and, and I think we should be making these considerations. I think also as we move forward and as technological uh, innovation increases, we'll have instances where Australia could potentially be more competitive because we don't require uh, as many human beings in running those systems because, as we know, every major industry is going to um, have greater technological advancement, artificial intelligence, automated equipment, um, which addresses part of that, that issue because ultimately it is our labour costs that are uh, often driving up those you know, manufacturing and electricity. Well, so, it's an, so it's an interesting report, and I think it's one that you know it's uh, it's worthwhile reading. And uh, I'll be honest, we'll have a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners will be relatively dubious. Uh, a lot of our listeners okay. will be will be livestock producers, and uh, yep. but we've said all along that uh, we recommend that all all producers go out there and actually go to Grilled and buy a Beyond Burger uh, because we think it is worthwhile at least knowing what it is and attempting it and trying it. But I thought you'd be happy to, to have a few questions more about the fake... The, the sort of, okay. oh, so I won't call it fake milk. We'll call it alternate protein market. Because uh, I had a few queries and I thought it would be good to pick your brain as the, uh, as the, as the country's expert. Uh, uh, happy to attempt to answer anything that I um, have knowledge about, but I, um, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're not hard questions. So. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what do you think is the, with these um, alternate proteins, what do you think is the, uh, you know, the primary customer segment that, uh, that will actually be purchasing? Because I know early on you said it would be, you know, it might be 
one person eating one patty a week or it might be uh, people eating multiple ones per week to make up that average. And I, I'm, uh, my, my gut feeling is that it would most likely be the some people eating a lot of them as opposed to most people eating it some of the time. Would you concur with that? And, and what do you think is the main market that this will be, uh, the, I guess, the market segment that you think these products will be uh, winning? Yeah, so in terms of the data that we have to date, uh, it's evident that the biggest segment of consumers driving demand for these products are meat eaters. They are people who still enjoy conventional meat, but again, whether it be concerns around their heart health, whether it be the climate, animal welfare, you know, there's a variety of, of reasons people could be um, wanting to reduce their meat consumption. They're looking for alternatives. Uh, people enjoy meat um, not because of the production process. They enjoy it because of the end product and the, you know, what that provides. It's, it's damn tasty. It's convenient. It holds cultural significance. And so if they still enjoy meat for all those reasons, but they're saying, hey, you know, I'm being made aware that it's, it, it, you know, it's not good for my cholesterol levels, as one example, uh, to be eating 100 kilograms a year, I want to reduce, but I still love the convenience of, um, you know, throwing some snags on the barbecue or having uh, some mint to, to, to make my favorite bolognese dish from. And so this, this new market for alternatives is really satisfying that demand for people to still enjoy that sensory experience and that convenience and that nutrition that they, that they used to in those same products and those same dishes, but whilst addressing those concerns. And so there's companies from the States that have indicated up to 90% of their customers are people who are still eating conventional meat. Of course, you've got the, you know, 10% or so of consumers who are meat free, um, who some of whom will enjoy these products because they mightn't have gone vegetarian because they didn't like the taste of meat. It could have been for personal or ethical or religious reasons. Um, but I actually think it's, yeah, it's much broader than just that, that, that niche hardcore meat-free demographic. Um, but, but going back to your point earlier about some of your, your listeners maybe being concerned about this, I really don't think we should be seeing this as a problem, um, even if you are in the business of producing traditional forms of protein. Uh, at the moment, consumers are offered a variety of different types of meat. Um, you know, you can have sausages made from pork or chicken or beef and plants. You know, this is about giving new options to people which address their evolving needs and demands and desires. This is coming, this is, you know, being driven by market uh, forces and, and consumer demand uh, that can sit alongside traditional options. So I, I, I really think that, that we should be seeing this as a new category that will sit alongside other forms of protein more than anything else, certainly for the mid to, you know, short to midterm. Um, there are some drastic recommendations that have been made by certain food and agricultural and sustainability authorities globally, UNFAO and Eat Lancet and IPCC and all those talking about drastic reduction in meat consumption. I mean, that's, even if we are moving towards that kind of future, it's, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. And let's be realistic about that. And so I, I think these new options are about starting to introduce um, 
uh, yeah, different different products to consumers to meet their evolving demands. You made an interesting point there. Uh, one that I'm always uh, most interested in is uh, the economic factors and uh, the market driving uh, what the consumer will do. And at the end of the day, you know, we go into a supermarket. What has an average supermarket got? 20,000 products. So we've got more choice than we've ever had. So, you know, right. from my point of view, you know, as you know, I'm also a pig producer as well. And, uh, you know, I still think that, well, the best product will win out in the end. But I think economics will be a considerable factor. And I, and I just did a bit of uh, highly scientific research today, uh, looking at some... Uh, some comparisons of, I guess, mid-range meats and um, and alternate um, uh, versions of them. So there, there is, economically, they are pretty constrained in terms of, uh, in comparison to the to the authentic meat version. So Beyond Meat Burger is $52 a kilo versus, you know, a standard burger of about 15, 10 to $15 a kilo. Mm-hmm. Uh, plant-based sausages, $24 a kilo versus, let's say, $9 a kilo. And uh, sun-fed chicken, uh, $36 a kilo versus, let's say, 12 to $14 a kilo for uh, free range. So it is, you know, it's roughly three times more expensive at the present for uh, for these uh, alternate-based uh, proteins. Do you Do you see... Well, A, do you see these prices coming down with, you know, improved uh, uh, capacity to produce these products? Uh, and secondly, do you think there's a market, if it doesn't go down, do you think there's a market for that many people to pay for it at those type of premiums? When, you know, I've tasted all three of these different products and I would say that the Beyond Burger is is pretty good, but it isn't as good as a real beef burger in terms of taste and texture is close, but mm-hmm. not quite close. And it will improve over time. But I probably wouldn't go back for a second and third time because I'm not willing to pay a premium for a product of that quality. So, so I guess, what, what what do you think on that? Right. Yeah, well, you, you make some, some very good and very um, uh, relevant points. And we go into this in the... Australian 2019 landscape chapter in this new report. Uh, and, and what we find is that, as you've alluded to, the, the majority of products um, kind of sit between 25 to 50% more expensive on a dollar per kilo basis. Uh, and this supports the research that, that, that Deloitte did as well. And then you've got options like the Beyond Burger, which are at the extreme end of the spectrum as a premium sort of imported alternative at, at $53 per kilogram. And so there is a price premium that consumers are currently paying uh, for these products compared with their conventional counterparts. And that's for a few reasons, but ultimately it's, it's economies of scale. Um, these products are produced on a far smaller scale than uh, traditional meat, which is, a, is an old and large longstanding industry. Um, and so I, I think there's a few considerations here. One is that over time, as production of these products increases, the, the price point will fall. Um, I think people that are currently buying these options 
are willing to pay a premium because even if they believe it doesn't taste as, as good, and I, I think that there are many products that don't taste as good as conventional meat, I think there are some that are pretty competitive and there's been a lot of focus groups done where, um, with some of the much better products where people really couldn't tell the difference. So they weren't made aware that it was an alternative and then were shocked afterwards. Um, but, but, but even if it doesn't taste as good, I think it's worth recognising that there are multiple converging factors driving people to want to purchase these alternatives, some of which I alluded to earlier, whether around health or environment. And so there's a portion of consumers who are willing to, for those reasons, pay a premium for these options. Um, I think that that will stop at a certain point in terms of market penetration because, of course, the vast majority of people are, are price sensitive and price is one of the top three drivers of consumer choice. We're talking about people's um, food purchases. And so, yeah, <clears throat> I, think that, I think that while these products remain at the, at the price premiums that they're currently at, they're not going to reach um, probably the majority of consumers. People might try them once or twice, like, like you've said, um, but mightn't go back. And so really it, it depends on the scale at which they're produced and how that price point falls. It also depends on how these products are being made. Again, there are various factors that determine um, the end price of a product, the ingredients that go into it and whether they're you know, commodity crops or whether they're uh, more novel ingredients, the process in which it, um, those ingredients are uh, put through to create the end product, whether that product is imported, um, any you know tariffs on top of that, and then ultimately the price at which the retailer or the food service group chooses to um, sell it at the margin that they have. And at the moment, uh, you know, large retailers in Australia have a greater premium on meat alternatives than they do conventional meat, which again I think is for for a variety of reasons. So. There are complex factors that result in these products being priced at the level they are. I think they will become cheaper over time. Um, but I also think that there's, and, and this has been proven uh, already, a segment of the population who are willing to continue to pay that premium for a number of reasons. Hmm. Like, that is interesting. <laughs> I was just thinking there about it and the price difference and the environmental concerns. And, uh, and yeah, if you were, Looking at the difference between the Beyond Meat, which I've said before is is a reasonably good premium one. I think that's probably the best. In in my, I've tried all of them, and I think that one's the closest in resemblance to to real meat. But with there being you know a close to forty dollars premium, you know I could plant a couple of trees for the difference and and have some of that environmental uh, benefit. One one of the other things I just want to make a point as well is that when it comes to the Australian beef industry. And this is where we see is one of the potential, you know, potential risks for Australian beef producers is that about 6% of all of our Australian beef exports actually go out to the US and that goes in as the form of boxed meat for, for mints. And, uh, you know, if there is a significant growth in that uh, substitutional meat, you know, for instance, uh, think of Burger King and a whole host of the major retailers are moving towards uh, uh, substitute meats in the coming year, that does have, you know, the potential to have a, a negative uh, a negative undertone to Australian beef export market 
just by virtue of the fact that you know seventy percent of our beef is exported. On the flip side, you know we do have an expanding wealthy planet who are eating more meat. So trade flows right. do trend I, to change. I, yeah, I think that's, I think it's an important distinction to make um, because while we do export to some developed countries that are in a similar situation to us in that they eat very large quantities of meat and there are some portions of those populations wanting to reduce. Uh, the majority of our of our red meat actually goes into to Asian markets where we know meat consumption is rising due to increasing middle class and increasing affluence. Um, so, you know, but regardless, we should be paying attention to these trends and we should be understanding how the world is changing and what those various market forces will mean for our food sector in 10, 20, 30, 40 years uh, and working to you know, diversify and adapt based on that. I, I sometimes worry that Australia can be a little bit complacent with these things. Sometimes we, I mean, we're obviously geographically isolated uh, from Northern America and Europe where a lot of these um, trends and this technological innovation, this progress is, is moving forward at quite a pace. And so we need to be careful not to be um, too complacent and too... Uh, you know, every major industry will experience considerable change over uh, the coming decades. That's, that's a given. And so we can choose to view that change as a problem that should be feared and fought, or we can choose to try and understand it, you know, listen to experts, uh, and figure out how we can leverage our strengths, our capabilities, and our unique value propositions to adapt and participate in that fast-changing world. Because um, as a proud Australian, as someone who has family in our agricultural sector, I want us to be, you know, ahead of the curve rather than losing out to, to new innovation. Yep, that's a good point. And a uh, quick one for you as well. The At the moment, all these meat substitute products are effectively minced-based products, really. Is there much in the way of developments of prime-cut alternate meats? Um, so, so, yes, the, the vast majority of meat alternatives are currently uh, ground meat products or, or you know, uh, products that would traditionally get their texture from um, downstream processing. So burgers and sausages and meatballs and dumplings and mince and, and often red meat. Um, but that's changing. So there are more companies uh, in the poultry space now, the poultry alternative space and the seafood alternative space. Um, but, yeah, not, not many looking at that prime cut sort of category, which is obviously when we're talking about... Um, those kinds of traditional products. They have very complex Structures. structure mm. that gives them the, the taste and the texture and the mouth feel that people are used to. That said, there is the field of cellular agriculture as well that, that is a little bit further down the track. It's not a commercial reality. But there are some companies around the world looking at um, how, they could, how they could potentially produce uh, you know, real animal meat that by farming cells rather than farming animals, if you like. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's not a reality yet. And um, has, 
obviously at the moment there's there's these very strong premiums for uh, for plant based proteins. Uh, when we look at uh, a lot of other agricultural industries, we can look at them. For instance, we can say uh, uh, a T-bone steak costs X, or a kilo of mince costs X, and we can actually back work back the way and work out you know how much how much of that goes to the farmer has has your research started to consider you know from uh, that plant-based premium product um, how much would go back to the farmer of say a, a pea producer for instance yeah look no I, I don't have that information on hand um, what we do know is as I said earlier there is considerable potential for Australian farmers producing products such as legumes to profit more from directing those products into a supply chain such as plant-based meat alternatives uh, than than pushing it out into the global commodity market. And again, we need more ingredient processing to open up that opportunity, more domestic processing. And there's an initial project that... um, is, is sort of kicking that off. One facility in uh, in Horsham. Victoria, in, near Horsham, yep, the Eat Group, uh, that'll be producing, you know, I mean, a, a relatively small quantity to start with, about 5,000 tonnes um, per year. I think they're looking at faba beans initially. Um, but, uh, you, you know, the, the, the more projects such as that that, that start up, the greater the this opportunity will become for primary producers in Australia um, and the clearer, uh, you know, more, the more data we'll have in terms of the detailed economics of it all. Yeah, no, I think that's that's something that a lot of farmers will want to know is, you know, you know how can they, they, you know, if it's a free billion dollar industry, how can they participate in some of that, that, that value that's available or potentially available? So fa- thanks for coming along, Thomas, and taking the time out. I know it's been a probably a whirlwind couple of days for you after the, uh, the the Global Table event and releasing this report. Have you got anything else to add or where where, you're, where people could find a report? Oh, look, I think, I think we covered all, all of the main points. Um, it certainly has been an exciting week and it's, it's been fantastic at Global Table to have conversations with stakeholders across the entire food industry in Australia, including primary producers and yeah, it's not the first time that I've presented to groups of um, livestock farmers. Uh, you know, I've previously met with, with cattle and sheep farmers to talk about alternative proteins and help them understand how this is all evolving globally and domestically and what it could mean for Australian agriculture. So, you know, we really want to be um, open and collaborative in these conversations. I don't think that there's, it helps anyone for us to um, take a, you know, um, adversarial approach to any of this. The reason that Food Frontier exists is to support uh, industry leaders to navigate these changes. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I really hope that your listeners see this as, uh, as more of an opportunity than, than a threat because this is moving forward globally. This sector will continue to grow. Um, there's, a, there's a hell of a lot of evidence and data to, to support that. And I'd like Australia to leverage our strengths and participate so that we can be globally competitive in the future global food market. No, thanks for thanks very much. I think that's that's the key thing. There's no point uh, 
banging heads about these type of things. What what happens happens, and the market will dictate uh, what products are the customer wants. So, and I think it, like you said, it's even even at three billion dollars, it's still a relatively small industry in 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 the grand grand scheme of things by by twenty thirty, and right. and it's still a good opportunity, but it's not going to. You know, at those type of levels, it's not going to kill off the animal agricultural industry, and I think that's what producers probably need to hear. So, so, so thanks for coming yeah, along. Yeah, look, our, our world is changing, and and change is never easy. And I sympathise with people who whose livelihoods are in industries that will be prone to change and innovation and, and disruption over coming decades. So, I can understand how people feel about about these sorts of things um, and I think it's all the more reason why we need to be having these um, open and collaborative and uh, evidence-based conversations no worries thanks for having you thanks for coming along Thomas uh, it's great to speak to you and really insightful likewise thank you no worries Thomas well thanks for that that was interesting that uh, was uh, yeah I think uh, people tend to get a bit worried about all this type of stuff but it is what it is, you know. People were. Uh, yes, I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a mindset thing. At the end of the day, um, again, to, to to bring it to that macro level, um, our, our world. Yeah, th- th- there's some really interesting graphs that illustrate this: the um, increase in change, globalization, technological disruption, uh, and that curve is getting steeper and steeper. Um, and within the next couple of decades, it's going to be essentially vertical, which is quite terrifying um, and is presenting all sorts of questions and challenges across society in terms of the impact of artificial intelligence and, and all of this. But no major industry is immune to that change and food and agriculture is, um, will, will be one of them that will experience that. And so... So I think it's important that when we when we consider these things and we um, look to adapt to the changing world, that um, we do have uh, an open mindset. So um, I, I, I would really hate Australia to shoot ourselves in the foot by, you know, taking a, a knee-jerk protectionist response to these sorts of things and not participating um, when we have a lot of a lot, you know, we could be leveraging. Um, anyway, no we talk about this all day. Yeah, well, thanks for coming along, anyway. Uh, if you ever have anything else, any more reports out, give us a bell, and uh, okay, we'll Will be happy do. to have a chat with you. Thank you for having me on the show. No worries. Cheers, buddy. Wonderful. Take care. Catch Cheers. you. Bye. Well, fake meat is definitely a controversial topic. I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to displace real premium meat anytime soon. I think it will likely have a place on the shelves, but I think the consumer will be the the judge in the end. And at present, the the quality of it and the price is probably not conducive to really competing with meat. But, you know, interesting to listen to Tom and and see uh, see his view and, and his group's view on the subject. I would love to hear uh, if you've got any views on what Thomas has said, you know, please drop us an email. at ask at mercado.com.au. Uh, as is always the case, it'd be great if you could share this amongst your friends and family. Uh, if you've got any ideas for further podcasts, uh, please get in touch. We'd love to hear them.
Hope you have a great day. Stay safe and hope the rain comes if you need it. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.